I hope you have, um, I hope you've been able to worship um, the Lord in spirit and in truth this morning so far. That is our intent, that is our desire to uh, focus on our great God and all that He's done for us. I want to, if, if you're a guest with us this morning, we welcome you and again uh, at the conclusion of the service out in our uh, foyer there in the Welcome Center. There's a gift for you. We're just glad you were here. We um, are studying through the book of Isaiah. It's been over a year now. We're just working our way through that book. Uh, but this morning, instead of starting uh, with Isaiah, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. It's a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached in a city on his first missionary journey called Pisidian Antioch. Acts chapter 13. And um, he, he's kind of on, uh, uh, unpacking a little bit of the history of the Jewish people. But I want to pick up with starting with verse 22. He's talking about the kings that uh, uh, Samuel the prophet anointed, Saul, and then it says in verse 22, after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom we also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, verse 25 says, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? am I, I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham, uh, Abraham's family, and those among you who fear the, uh, God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. This is Paul preaching. He's preaching in the synagogue, so his Jewish audience. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which were read every Sabbath, they fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. And then verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise that was made to our fathers, that God has fulf uh, fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has said this, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, therefore. He also says that another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Now verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised 
did not undergo decay. And therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Wouldn't it have been fun to have been in that synagogue listening to this sermon as Paul preaches his heart out using Old Testament scriptures? Now, the heart of what he was saying is there in verse 30, 31, 32, when he said, God raised him from the dead. And many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. And then he said in verse 32, and we preach to you good news, good news of the promise made to the fathers. The promise. Now, he, he said that in verse 23. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior. We're preaching to you good news about the promise. Now, what was this promise? This seems to be the focal point of Paul's sermon. What was the promise? Well, we can look at 2 Samuel, back in the Old Testament, a promise that God gave to King David. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's repeated in Psalm 89. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. This is what is known as the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant. And when Paul is preaching in the synagogue that day, he's focusing on the promise, the promise given to King David that there would always be a perpetual uh, Davidic son on the throne of David to all generations. He's telling the Jewish people in Pisidian Antioch here in this synagogue, we're preaching to you good news of the promise. Now, he said, I'm preaching to you good news about the promise. That's the promise, but what's the good news about that promise? They knew the promise. There'll always be a David boy. But Paul is saying, now, here's the good news about that promise. He tells us in verse 33 again that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We preach to you the good news about the promise. And that good news is Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promises and it's perpetual because he was raised from the dead on the third day. The good news of the promise is that Jesus is alive. Now, in verse 34, to verify this, he quotes from another Old Testament passage. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. I will give you the holy and sure, certain blessings of David. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 55. 
verse 3. He quotes this verse in um, assurance that what God said about the promise of the Davidic lineage had now been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Davidic lineage promise, the Davidic covenant, because he was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is making good on the promise of God that there would always be a little David boy on the throne. Paul quotes clear back in Isaiah 55, the holy and sure promises, blessings of David. Now, the prophet Isaiah has talked about these, these blessings of David throughout the book of Isaiah that we've been studying. For instance, we have seen many times Isaiah chapter 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Or in chapter 16, verse 5, a throne will be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. And as Isaiah continued to write, his book, he refers to this coming one who's called the servant of the Lord that we've seen numerous times. And he wrote these four songs, servant songs. And for instance, chapter 42, verse 1 begins, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Or in 52, verse 13, Behold my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Woven throughout this book of Isaiah is this promise, the perpetual lineage of David. And now turn to me to chapter 55, the chapter we're going to look at this morning. In chapter 55, this very passage that the Apostle Paul quoted in his sermon in Pisidian Antioch, this passage... God is inviting the Israelites of old to enter into the wonderful realities and the certainties of that Davidic blessing, of that Davidic promise. He is inviting the Israelites to experience the fulfillment of the promises to David. Isaiah 55 is God's great and grand invitation to enter into the abundant pleasures of the fulfilled promises given to David, the promises of the coming king. Look with me at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Now, these words are not just talking about physical feasting. 
getting wine and milk and bread and having a feast physically. It's talking about a spiritual abundance, a spiritual delights. God is offering his people the experience of blessings, the experience of the richness of spiritual blessings at no cost, totally free, graciously provided by a sheer goodness and kindness. It's very similar to what he said in a previous chapter, chapter 51, verse 3. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. Will be, he will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of melody. Are you thirsty? Isaiah is saying, or God is saying, are you hungry? Would you like an Eden-like experience? Come, find joy and gladness and the abundance of delight in the garden of the Lord. Come, he says, come. And he's inviting them into this grand blessing in the fulfillment of David's promises, the Davidic promise. He goes on in verse 3 and says, Incline your ear and, and come to me. Listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And I think more properly would say, and I will confirm the everlasting covenant with you. Which one? According to the faithful mercies shown to David. That's the verse that Paul quoted in his sermon in the synagogue at Antioch. Come, incline your ear, listen, that you may live. I will confirm the everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies, the holy and certain and sure blessings, mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Who? The certain and sure blessings of David. Who's that? Paul told us, the resurrected Jesus, the fulfillment of all the blessings, this person who showed up some 700 years after Isaiah wrote this. And then he says in verse 5, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. Because the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. What is God saying here? Israel, come. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Come. Do you want an Eden-like experience? Come. Do you want to live? Come to me and experience the fulfillment of the promises given to David, this coming one, the leader, the commander of the people. And the, the garden of delights and the Eden-like experiences are going to be so real, so true. The nations will run to you. They will want to experience it too because of your glory. He has glorified you. The grand invitation given by God to his chosen people, Israel. And yet, there's a warning 
There's a sense of urgency. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. Here's the urgency with this invitation. The imperatives here in verse 6, seek the Lord while he can be found. Call upon him while he is near. Those imperatives stress the urgency of the moment. A window of opportunity is being provided, but it will not stay open forever. Now, remember, if you've been with us in this study of Isaiah, to whom is Isaiah writing these words? This last section of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, these 27 chapters were written to Jewish people who had been taken off into captivity in ancient Babylon. They'd been stripped from their homes and started in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came. 586, it was complete. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple destroyed. And the Jewish people were, were taken from the land and 500 miles plus away in the empire of Babylon, there they are as captives in exile. And now Isaiah writes to these futuristic people. And he tells them, will you return to the Lord? The offer is being presented. Will you return? There's a window of opportunity. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call out to him while he's near. God is giving them an opportunity. As he raised up, as we've seen in previous studies of Isaiah, Cyrus, the king of Persia, who was going to come and defeat the Babylonians and set the Jewish people free. But would they return? For 70 years they've been in captivity. Would they return to a land that most of them had never seen? Now, we know from later prophetic writings, even from the book of Esther, that the Jewish people had gotten well assimilated into the culture and to the life of Babylon. They had really found themselves quite at home in Babylon. They were experiencing the richness of life in Babylon. Would they heed God's call and invitation for the Eden-like experience? Come home, come home and live. Or would they say, you know, I got it pretty good here. I can handle things right here. I'm content right here. Isaiah is calling these ancient Israel, seek the Lord, call upon him, forsake your ways, return to the Lord. He's providing you a glorious future in fulfillment of the promises made to David. Starting in verse 8 through 13, he accentuates the, um, the, the reality or the certainty of this invitation. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, I think God is saying, ancient Israel, don't try to overly think this. You can't. 
you can't even envision eating like pleasures, not being thirsty, not being hungry, living in the garden of delights, the fulfillment of my promises back in the land. Just trust me, because my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Trust me on this. Oh, I, everything around you would call you to, to stay put. Everything, uh, the circumstances of life, the pleasures of where you're at, the materialism of the day would call you to just stay put. But understand this. I've got a plan for you that you know not because my ways are far greater than your ways. He says in verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without water in the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed for the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. He said, just like the rain comes and does what it's supposed to do, water the ground and sprout up the earth. So when I'm speaking my words of promise, when I have told King David there will always be a David boy, when I told Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed, when I spoke through the prophets, when my word communicated a coming day of incredible blessing upon the earth, it will not return void, empty. It will happen because I have spoken it, the certainty of this invitation. God reassures then in verse 12 and 13 that his promises are indeed certain. And he paints this picture in verse 12. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace, shalom. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field, they will clap their hands. And instead of the thorn bush, cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord, an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. In other words, this is going to happen. The mountains and the hills are going to shout for joy. And the fields are going to clap their hands. And the, the curse of this earth is going to be reversed and there will be blessings untold in that coming day when the commander and the leader of the people, the son of David, the servant of the Lord comes and he restores it all back. Come, experience it, he says. Come to the garden of delights and live. Experience the delight of abundance. Don't be content with Babylonian existence, he says. For the world is going to change and glory and joy and shalom and righteousness and justice will reign. There's coming a day, and Isaiah's been unpacking this for us in these, this book of his, there's coming a day when this entire world is going to experience this peace and this pleasure and this incredible glory that God has prepared. When the remnant of the Jewish people, some 50,000 Jews, did return from Babylon, and they came back to this 
broken down city of Jerusalem, there was joy, there was singing, there was celebration, but it was very short-lived. It was only for a moment. And God's timing, the ultimate fulfillment of the blessings of David, await a future day. Did God do kind of a bait and switch here on those Jewish people? Hey, come! <laughs> it's not going to really happen. Come and enjoy this. My ways are not your ways, says God. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And guess what? My timetable is not yours. The Jewish people would have to wait another 500 years after they returned from Babylonian captivity before their Messiah came. And then they said, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. John reminds us that he came to his own, and his own received him not. But though these words were written to ancient Israel, they reveal, I think, something to us as well as of the gracious, loving, kind, and, and certain promises of a God who's actively working today just as much. The very God who in Isaiah chapter 55 invited his people to delight in the abundance and live is the very God who this morning invites us to do exactly the same. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Work with me here a little bit in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Two in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, do you remember? He gave a message, seven messages or seven letters to seven churches in that first century period. His messages in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 were, were messages or letters that meant, were meant to correct and to warn, to rebuke, to exhort, to encourage, to entice these believers, these early believers, these Christian churches to persevere in troubled times, to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. But I want us to look at, in chapter 3, God's letter to the Laodicean church. It's particularly hard-hitting. Starting in verse 14, here are the words. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Laodicean church was full of lukewarm Christians. They weren't hot, they weren't cold. They were just complacent, comfortable, and a very materialistic culture and world. Laodicea, history tells us, the city of Laodicea was a very wealthy city in the Roman world. It was a center of banking. There was a medical school that had uh, perfected a, 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 a particular eye ointment for healing, very well known and very, very profitable. And the fervency for Christ in that church had waned. 
They were content in their Babylonian world. Verse 17 says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Having lost their biblical values and embracing the world's values, the estimation from our Lord is, you think you're rich and wealthy and lack nothing? Are you kidding me? You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus said, if you've got mixed up priorities, you're, you're deceived about your, your real situation. He says in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I have to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Look to me, not to the wealth of the Laodicean culture. Look to me. Find your, your wealth and your richness in me, he says. And he's challenging them that he can offer true wealth, that he can offer them true abundance. And so he gives this invitation, another grand and great invitation from God in verse 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. And I also, and I also over, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now oftentimes this verse is used, is it not, as a verse that we give to unsaved people. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, you know, and invite Jesus Christ into your heart. Kind of, That's not what this verse is referring to. He's, he's writing to the church, to believers. And he's inviting them. I, I'm knocking at your door. Open. Dine with me. Sup with me. God's abundance is a person. It's, it's Jesus. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him. We'll, we'll find refreshing feasting together in communion, the delights of intimacy. And today, Jesus is inviting us as well. I'm standing at your door of your heart, he says. Might be some people here today who have lived their life and somewhat pushed away God because we're very busy making our living, acquiring those things that are going to make us happy, filling our life with the stuff of this world, and thinking that in them there's pleasure. He's knocking at the door of our hearts and he's offering to dine with us in sweet, intimate communion. Says, Do you think you're rich by the world's standards? 
man, he said, you're wretched and poor and blind and naked and miserable. Find in me, he says. I can give you life in abundance. I can give you joy inexpressible. I can give you peace that passes all understanding. I can give you hope that'll never fade away. In spite of the circumstances of life, you can find a place of abundance in your walk and relationship with me. I've come to give you life. I've come so that rivers of living water can flow from the very innermost being of you. Come! Come and, and enjoy the delights and the abundance of the Son of David, the resurrected Savior. And oh, by the way, it's without cost. It's free. What kind of, of a Christian life are you experiencing today? Is it filled with dissatisfaction, with a sense of oftentimes worry, joylessness? A lot of inner turmoil and personal conflicts and a lack of peace? Or are you experiencing the sweetness of a relationship with Almighty God even when the circumstances of life grow sour and bitter. Blaise Pascal, some 400 years ago, wrote, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. And even as believers in Jesus Christ, when we have the wonderful opportunity of our Savior inviting us into relationship of intimacy with him, knocking at our heart's door and saying, I came to give you life and to give it to you in abundance. So oftentimes we are attempting to fill the hole in our soul with the things of creation instead of the creator himself. When God invites us, he's telling us, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Come! Feast yourselves on my presence. Live in the abundance of the pleasures of who I am. Delight yourself in me. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote in The Weight of Glory, his book. I've referred to this numerous times over the, over the years, decades. Let me read just a couple extended paragraphs when he said, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. What? Let me read that again. If there lurks in the most minds of modern man that this notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of life, that that's a bad thing, well, this is not the Christian faith, he said. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, and I would say Isaiah, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're content with what? 
a couple million dollars in our retirement portfolio? What? That's what you're pursuing? A new home? A new car? The, a better job? C.S. Lewis is saying your desires are, are not too strong, they're too weak. And then he says this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Let that resonate with us. May the Spirit of the living God communicate to us right now the message of Isaiah 55, because we need Him to make this clear to us. Because so often, folks, as believers, we are far too easily pleased with the trivial, trifle, and soon-to-be-burned-up things of this world. What an offer of a holiday at sea, the delights of His presence. Jesus knocking at the door saying, open, I want to sup with you. I want to dine with you. I'll provide the feast, my presence, the resurrected son of David. Come, delight yourself in abundance and find in me hope and joy and, and shalom, peace. He's offering this today to any believer in Jesus Christ. And so we need to decide what we want to do with it. Folks, we do not have the luxury to walk out of this room, out to our cars and head home and not deal with the knock at the door. Oh, we, we can ignore it and continue on an existence or we can enter into, and I'm talking to myself here, enter into an experience a relationship with the living God like it was meant to be experienced in spite of all the mess of this world, all the pain and suffering that many of you and I have faced in spite of whatever comes our way, God is saying, come. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Come. I've got an Eden-like experience for you in the garden of the Lord. Experience the abundance of my presence and live all made possible as the Apostle Paul preached 2,000 years ago. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. The certain and holy, the sure blessings of David. Maybe you're here today and you've yet to put your trust in this resurrected Jesus. I would invite you today to consider the truthfulness when Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one can experience the abundance of eternal life apart from me. The good news is that Jesus did come to earth and he did die on a cross and he paid for your sins and mine. It was your sins that will be keeping you from an eternal blessings of a relationship with God for all eternity. Your sins separate you from a holy God. But God so loved this world, he gave his son, and Jesus died on a cross, and he paid for those sins. And he rose again from the dead, and he offers no charge, free, 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 no cost, the blessings of eternal life to experience then and to be experienced right now eternal life. If you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, would you do that right now? Let's bow our head, please. Our Father, I pray that you will um, jar our hearts a little bit this morning from this ancient writing of Isaiah 55. Because you're still speaking that invitation to us even now. And so, Father, um, stir in us, jar our hearts, stir in us as we hear you knock. Maybe, Father, some of us here have kind of gotten caught up in the things of this world, kind of lost that, that, uh, that first love, as one of the other letters in Revelation said. Maybe we're trying to find our happiness and our, our contentment and our joy and so many other things in our Babylonian experience. And, and we hear you say, return to me. Seek me while I may be found. Call upon me. And that's what you're inviting us to do. You, Lord Jesus, the living God, the fulfillment of the blessings of David, the leader and commander who will one day return and reign supreme and all the Eden-like experiences will be known and seen and felt in this world when you reign again. Challenge your hearts, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.